we come now to that point in our worship in which we exalt the Lord through the preaching of his scriptures. Today we have the great privilege of celebrating Christmas, the first coming of Jesus Christ, that moment in history when God dwelt among his people by becoming man in the form of the Son, Jesus Christ. What better way to worship the word than by preaching from the word? The preaching of his word is not only an act of worship because it exalts God, but it furthers worship by fixating our mind on his mind and aligning our heart with his heart. On this Christmas morning, then, we come to the word, come to the Bible, because it is the perfect gift to reveal the perfect gift. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, Living a Sustained Life in Christ, the Gift of Christ. And so please stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not even receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You may be seated. It was James Montgomery Boyce who asked, what is or what was the greatest moment in the history of the world? The traditional answer would be either the discovery of fire or the invention of the wheel. A historian might refer to the flowering of intellectual life in Greece in the 5th century B.C., Another might argue for the imposition of the world law under the authority of the Roman Empire. 
And a modern person might refer to the discovery of the atomic energy, or in our own time, to travels beyond the earth, to the moon, and, and perhaps to someday beyond. These moments in history of the human race, they are indeed interesting. And of course, we would say they're, they're important. In their own way, each is very significant. But no thinking Christian would ever answer the question by pointing out one of these happenings. The only answer that a Christian can give would be the coming of human history of the Lord God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ. The significance of this moment altered not just history, but it adjusted the present and it amended the future. It transformed the style, structure, status, and substance of life by fixating all of those who would follow him, that is Christ, not on physical life, but on eternal life. Such a revolution required nothing less than the action of God. It required him to descend from his throne in heaven to his trial on earth. It required him to shelve his glory and suffer man's misery like a military operation in which one nation occupies another in order to impart or seek lasting change. It took the Lord's physical occupation of earth to impart lasting change. That change inaugurated the age of the church. That change initiated the era of grace. That change introduced man to forgiveness. And that change instigated salvation. And that change imparted the Holy Spirit. And it took nothing less than God becoming man to accomplish that transformation. The pre prevailing belief of John's era was that the spiritual world was all good and the physical or the material was evil. And so they would say that the two could not mix the physical and the spiritual. As a result, when John writes in our text, the word became flesh. To them, this not only seems irrational to their religious beliefs of that time, but it seems like heresy. God could not intermingle with man. In Acts chapter 14, specifically in verse 11, when Paul and Barnabas go into Lystra and they, they heal a man, the people begin to declare that these are gods who have come in the form of man. It's revealed that some believe that gods would disguise themselves as humans and enter into the world. But none of these beliefs accurately portray what we celebrate today. We do not celebrate that God appeared as man or that he came in the likeness of man. We rejoice because God became man. He physically dwelt among his people. This is the greatest moment in history. The significance of this moment is determined by the seriousness of our text. This text has caused cultures to set aside this time of the year for a special celebration. It's a time of year that's emphasized by the priorities of faith and family. A time of year that is synonymous with music that is meant to exalt the Lord. And it's a time of year that is associated with the giving of gifts. 
though those gifts may bring delight and satisfaction, those gifts must never overshadow the greatest gift of all. We celebrate the greatest moment in history because it brought forth the greatest gift in history. And so this morning I set before you a text from the first chapter of John that explains what we Christians celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. As we expose our hearts to this text, I want us to unwrap three gifts from the Lord. Three gifts from the Lord. We come first to the gift of revelation. The gift of revelation. Throughout our passage over the past several weeks, John has subtly but repeatedly placed our attention on the eternal nature of Christ, on the eternality of the word. That is, that he has always existed and will always exist. And now John combines Christ's eternality with Christ's superiority so that he is seen as the one who is pre-existently preeminent. Christ is not only the one who is eternally exists, but he comes first in his significance, first in importance. He is preexistent because he has always existed, and he is preeminent because he is first in rank and first in significance in our life. Speaking of the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah, John writes in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. That is, he existed before John. Though he comes after John in our text, Christ is more important than John. The one who comes in first in birth is given an inheritance. The one who comes first in rank is given importance. And the one who comes in first in skill is given influence. From an earthly perspective, it would seem that John has all of these, birth, rank, and skill. But he steps back, and instead he points to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is preexistently preeminent because he is both eternally and infinitely God. Though physically born first, probably by about six months, John says he ranks, Christ ranks before me because Christ was before me. We speak of the beginning of a person's life at birth. Every individual's existence commences with the story of having been born, the child of a mother and a father. But the story of Jesus begins differently. Though we speak of him being born to Mary and Joseph, his beginning was further back. In fact, he has no beginning. He already was. He already existed. Donald Gray Barnhouse has written in the cross to the open tomb, the history of every other human being begins at birth. But the Lord Jesus Christ exists eternally as a second person of the Godhead. Before he was born at Bethlehem, he lived. He was the one with the Father in essence and being. Before he came to earth as a baby, he walked among men and revealed himself to them. The Old Testament, which was completed four centuries before his birth, contains many stories of his appearing among men before he came as a babe, child, and man. Jesus has always existed, and he will always exist. 
Before the beginning was, he was. And when creation as we know it ends, he will continue to be. Most importantly, it's not merely that Jesus has existed eternally, but he's existed eternally as priest, prophet, and king. He is eternally master both in heaven and over earth. He is eternally king both on earth and over earth. And he is eternally Lord both in our lives and over our lives. Not only is he eternally God, he is infinitely God. All the attributes of God the Father reside infinitely within God the Son. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely powerful. There is no end to either one of those. Verse 14 in our text refers to Christ as attaining glory and being full of grace and truth. As God, he is infinitely glorious. And he has an infinite amount of grace and truth. Christ's supply of divine attributes will never be exhausted. They will never be depleted. We can't say that because the Lord was loving to someone over here, he now does not have enough love to love us over here. He is love. Christ doesn't have love. He is love. It is sourced from him. It comes from within him. And so it is his to give freely and generously. And so he has enough love to love everybody because he is infinitely loving. That description infinite applies to all his attributes. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. Having an eternal perspective in which he can see the beginning and the end, and he knows both, he can act within what he judges right. And then, being infinitely wise, he uses that wisdom to direct as he sees fit. At the same time, if this is an infinitely good God, then we can trust and need everything that has taken place is for the good of his people. I would tell you then, because Christ is eternally God, and Christ is infinitely God, he is also sufficiently God. From within him came everything that was sufficiently necessary to manufacture creation. We saw this in John chapter 1, verse 3, when it says all things were created through him. Within him is everything sufficiently necessary to manufacture creation. And from within him comes everything necessary to sufficiently maintain creation. Not only did he create the world, but now he orders it and makes sure that it is functioning. That's why Paul can write with confidence that by him, by Christ, all things were created. And in him, in Christ, all things hold together. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus alone is eternally God and infinitely God, and so he is sufficiently God. Think a moment for that, about that statement. Jesus alone is eternally God and infinitely God, and so he is sufficiently God. Because he is eternally God, and because he is infinitely God, it means that Jesus Christ is sufficient for the needs of his people. He is capable of caring for his creation, including you and I. 
He can pull from his infinite wisdom, his infinite goodness, his infinite love, his infinite knowledge, his infinite holiness, and meet the needs of people. Most specifically, that means he is sufficient to meet the spiritual needs, to overcome their sin. And so he is a sufficient God. He is sufficient for your neighbor. He is sufficient for your children. He is sufficient for you and I. Consider more that in verse 14, it describes Jesus as the only son from the father. Literally, the text refers to him as the only begotten son. And if you want to be even more literal, the Greek text says the only begotten God. Translators have rightly chosen to translate the word in that text as son. And they do so so that we can distinguish here between God the Father and God the Son. But the idea of saying that he is the only begotten God is to emphasize his deity, to emphasize that Jesus Christ is God. In fact, it says he is the only Son, the only God from the Father. There can be no other God There can be no other son, and there can be no other God begotten from God the Father. But he is sufficiently God, so there's no need for another. If Christ is all-wise, all-powerful, rather infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, if there really was another God, what could that God ever contribute to Christ that he does not already have? It doesn't make sense that there would be need to be another God. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely existent. He is eternal. Nothing will outlast him. He is infinitely powerful. Nothing will outmaneuver him. He is infinitely wise, and nothing will outwit him. He is infinitely glorious, and nothing will outdo him. This makes him permanently God. Because he is eternally God, infinitely God, and sufficiently God, he is permanently God. There will never be another. This is the same Christ who has offered himself both to us and for us. By his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our transgressions. By his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our temptations. And by his birth, he has made himself available to overcome our trials. This is the pre-existent, preeminent Christ. I want you to note second, his inexplicable incarnation. His inexplicable incarnation. John writes, verse 14 again, And the word became flesh. Those words amount to the Christmas story. The word became flesh is Christ being born, Christ becoming man. Edward Coswell writes, Low where the manger lies, he who built the starry skies. Noted author George MacDonald describes it with this word. They were all, they all were looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. Thou camest to the little baby thing that made a woman cry. The word became flesh. This is at the point at which deity met humanity, and they merge. 
that moment when God unveiled himself in the form of a man. It is known as the incarnation, the enfleshing of God, God becoming flesh. This is beyond description. It's beyond our capacity to understand. Though the, the incarnation may be inexplicable in human language, it is foundational to human belief. All that we believe about God, all that we believe about humanity, and all that we believe about faith are tied to all that we believe about this verse. It's for this reason that in 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon met. And at that time, for 24 days, 520 bishops came together and they met to define and defend the deity of Christ. That's not an easy task. To capture the blending of of Christ's nature, fully God and fully man, is to try to explain the unexplainable. It is a concept far more intricate than our finite minds can understand. Causes J.C. Ryle to write, it is one of those great truths with which we are not meant to be curiously pried into, but to be reverently believed. I agree with Ryle in the sense that that doctrine of the incarnation is something to be believed and reverently believed. If we trust the pre-existent preeminence, then we must trust the inexplicable incarnation. Though it may not be fully understood, its presentation in scripture makes it undeniable. We must believe that Christ became man. I do disagree with Ryle, though, that it's a great truth that we don't curiously pry into. Anything that speaks to the greatness of God is worth pursuing. But we do so that we may know more, not that we may know more about God only, but that we may know God more intimately. Though we may endeavor to know more, at the same time, we have to find ourselves content with the revelation that God has permitted. We must be so content in our knowledge of God that we, we must never be so content in our knowledge of God that we, we never become complacent. But at the same time, we must be content enough that we trust that all that the Lord has revealed is sufficient for our understanding. We don't need to understand everything, but we need to understand that he is God. Actually, sometimes God restricts his knowledge for our benefit. This is part of his goodness, actually. And we'll see that in a moment. And so we must labor to understand as much as our feeble minds can understand. And at the same time, be content that we may not understand it all. And so as we look at this dual nature of Christ, our understanding is enhanced by one key word in our text, became. And the word became flesh. This is crucial because it signifies that Jesus Christ did not just appear in human form. He did not just look like a man. He was a man. The notion of becoming to become something indicates a change of properties that something has transformed so that it became something that it wasn't before. 
In this case, Christ, who was God, now became Christ as man. But we must be very careful in saying, when we say that he became man, and that we don't deny that he's still God. We can use this word became in two different ways. And I point to Lot and his wife as an example. It can be used in the sense of describing Lot's wife, who upon fleeing in turn, she became a pillar of salt. And when she became that pillar of salt, she ceased being Lot's wife. She didn't exist anymore. But in a different sense, it can be used to describe Lot himself, who became the father of Moab and Ammon. Though he became their father, he did not cease being Lot. And that is what it is with Christ. Though he became flesh, he did not cease being God. If he had not still been God, he couldn't be sinless. And yet if he was not man, he couldn't be the sacrifice. And so we could not have this sinless sacrifice that was sufficient on the cross. And so both natures, fully man, fully God, must be carefully preserved in order for his death and resurrection to be sufficient for covering our sins. To ensure that both natures were encapsulated, the statement from the Council of Chalcedon reads this, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, we teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. To some, this discussion may seem trivial, but it's on this point that so many people compromise. There's a lot of people who will allow that Jesus Christ existed, but existed only as a man. But they will stop short of allowing him to be God. But this is a proof of our faith. The test of whether or not a person is of the Lord is dependent upon our confession of this doctrine. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So this is a test about whether or not one is truly teaching the truth of Christ and one is truly a disciple of Christ. So serious is this doctrine that 
there's this well-known story of the Apostle John, the author of our book. And that when he went to a bathhouse with some of his disciples, upon entering, he saw Serenthus. Serenthus was a follower of Docetism. You don't need to worry about it, but Docetism is one of those groups mentioned earlier that believe that everything spiritual is good and everything material is bad. And so they would say God could not become flesh. So they denied the deity, the godness of Christ. They said Christ was not God. Upon seeing him in the bathhouse, John's response was, let us leave at once, lest the bathhouse fall in on us. So crucial is this doctrine to the Christian faith that the disciple John is not even willing to be in the same presence of someone who does not believe that Jesus Christ is God. The incarnation is one of those pillars of our faith. It holds up the structure of everything we believe. If we get this wrong, we get salvation wrong. Though we may not grasp it fully, we must grasp it undeniably. This is the inexplicable incarnation. Part of what makes the inexplicable incarnation such a remarkable doctrine is that it signifies something astonishing for all of mankind. And it's shown in the next words of our text. John not only writes the word became flesh, but then he adds to it four words. And they're four little words. But those four words transform all of human history. He says, and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to note third, the pleasing presence. His pleasing presence. On this Christmas day as we unwrap these gifts of the Lord. The first gift, the gift of God's revelation, is uniquely special because it comes with the gift of God's presence. Part of the means for God revealing himself is by becoming a man who came to earth physically. These words that he dwelt among us, it draws readers like us all the way back to the tabernacle when God dwelled among his people. When we attempt to understand the significance of God living amongst his people, we, we rightly think back to God's presence in the garden with Adam and Eve. Sometimes we'll even think of his interactions with people like Abraham. But most specifically, John attempts here to transport us back to the tabernacle in the time of Moses. This was a time when Israel was wandering And the tabernacle went with the people from place to place. That tabernacle was the place of the Lord, the dwelling place of the Lord. And so where the people went, the tabernacle went. And where the tabernacle went, the Lord went. How was that possible? Because the tabernacle was what? A tent. It was a tent made from materials, according to God's instructions, and the finest of materials. But it was still a tent. It was something portable that could be moved from place to place. With that in mind, look back at our text then. And it says, and he dwelt among us. 
But literally that translates, and he pitched a tent among us. The coming of Jesus establishes God's presence once again. Remember that the tabernacle was given for a time when people in Israel were sojourners. They, they lived as foreigners. They had no land of their own. And so they moved from place to place and the Lord went with them. In the same way, the Lord Jesus reestablishes God's presence with God's people. But now we're still sojourners. Not from our physical home, but from our heavenly one. We live as foreigners here on earth because our, our citizenship is in heaven. This tabernacle was at the center of Israel's camp. It was a place of worship. And now it is Christ who, whom should be the center of our lives, and it is Christ whom should be the center of our worship. Likewise, the tabernacle was the source of God's revelation. To hear from God, they went into the tabernacle, but now it is Jesus who is the source of that revelation. The presence of Jesus signifies the presence of God. That is to say, Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of Jesus makes God visible. The presence of Jesus makes God personal. The presence of Jesus makes God knowable. The presence of God makes Jesus underst God understandable. The presence of Jesus makes God apprehensible, like we can apprehend and know him. And that makes the presence of Jesus making God relational. Because Christ is here, we can have a relationship with Christ, with God. Consider what we would miss if Christ had not come. How mundane would life be? More importantly, how unlivable would life be? And not just our physical lives, our eternal lives too. The gift of God's revelation gives us the pleasing presence of Christ. And it is pleasing because it teaches us to be pleased by God's presence. And so this is the pleasing presence. I want you to note finally the majestic magnificence. The majestic magnificence. The last part of verse 14 it announces something very spectacular, saying, And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ is glorious. He is majestic and magnificent. This glory was Christ by divine right. As the only Son of God, he inherits this glory. As the eternal, infinite, sufficient, permanent God. As he prays to God the Father in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus writes these words. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is Jesus praying to God the Father. And he affirms here that the glory has always been part of his heritage. And now John says that through Christ, one can see the glory of God. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you hear the privilege in that verse? The birth of Christ unveils the glory of God. 
allowing men and women the opportunity to view God in such a way that no other person ever had before. In the generations prior, the, the glory of God was beheld or observed in the wilderness as Israel wandered in the desert. It was observed in the tabernacle in Exodus 40. And eventually it was observed in the temple. But now John says that the majestic magnificence of God is now displayed by the wondrous works of Christ. God calls his glory the manifestation of God's presence and power. And so we could say then that the presence of Christ on earth and the power of his miracles are the display of God's glory. Those living in an era of Christ, they bore witness to that glory. They saw it with their own eyes. We're told that John saw that. And so John and others uniquely saw this glory of God in such a way that no other person prior to them had ever seen it before. But it's still veiled. It's still slightly obscured. They didn't see the full revelation of glory. John, and with Peter and James, he gets the opportunity to even see far more of God's glory at the transfiguration. When they stood by at an event that scripture describes as Jesus' face shining like the sun and his clothes becoming as white as the light. Even in this instance, at the transfiguration, this vision of glory is still obscured. It's still not fully revealed to them. They only got a piece of seeing Christ's glory. God did not allow them to see fully, and this is actually to their benefit. Because had they seen it fully, they would have ceased to live. They would have died. R.C. Sproul describes it this way. It is fundamental that God is invisible and without form. Moreover, if God were to manifest his glory in a form that we would see, his divine purity would destroy sinful humans. What was God doing there? By not allowing them to see his full glory or Christ's full glory, he's protecting them. This was a case in which God demonstrates his goodness by limiting our knowledge of him something I mentioned earlier. God actually, resists, God actually restricts access to his glory, but he does so for our benefit. At the same time, to know and experience even a portion of that glory is to experience something that is phenomenal and pleasing because it is to experience God. Scripture has several examples of people who had sought the glory of the Lord. The most commonly known story is that of Moses. It was Moses who dared to say to God, show me your glory. The audacity of that statement is astounding. Because who among here, of any of us, would have the courage to stand before the Lord and make such a demand? But the Lord delivered. The Lord allowed Moses to see a piece of his glory. But more amazing than that is that privilege granted to Moses has now been granted to all of humanity through Christ. 
Today, we get to see that glory revealed through these accounts of those past witnesses testifying to the glory of God through Christ during their lifetime. The accounts we hold in our hands in the Bible, in the word, they're the very stories of his presence and power. And so they confirm his majestic magnificence. And then, of course, we come to the cross. And we see the magnitude of God's glory on display at his most humiliating moment. Because it's at that point, that death, burial, and resurrection, that Christ provides for salvation. As I said last week, Christ's glory overcomes man's depravity. Christ's holiness overcomes man's sinfulness. What Moses longed for, to see the glory of God, is granted as a privilege to us. It's taken for granted, though, sometimes, too frequently, we forget the magnitude of God's revelation in Christ. What Moses sought as a privilege, we assume as a right, and we sometimes squander that. Indeed, the glory of God must always be revealed, concealed. It cannot be fully revealed. And yet the Lord has always been generous with his glory. He has allowed many people to see it, to experience this unique splendor. Notice that the glory of Christ always demands a response, though. Not that God requires a response. He doesn't say, if I show you my glory, then you must act a certain way. Instead, it's that people are so overcome by this glory, his majestic magnificence, that they're compelled to respond. When Moses saw the Lord, when he said, show me your glory, and he got to see it, he responded in worship. The prophet of Isaiah had a different response. In fact, it seems that Isaiah's view and vision was so realistic and so close to the real thing that he cries out to God in Isaiah 6.5 and says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Upon seeing the glory of the Lord, Isaiah feels insignificant. Jesus knows that when Abraham saw him, and, and do you realize that, that Abraham saw Jesus Christ? We know that because in John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Notice Abraham's response. He was glad. He rejoiced. If we're to take our cues from these saints, we note that the glory of God initiates a response of humility and worship and joy. But allow me to add one more thing. Something from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The word beholding in that text, this where it says beholding the glory of the Lord, in this case signifies reflecting, like a mirror reflects an image. And so those being transformed into the image of Christ, according to this text, reflect the glory of Christ. We cannot look upon the majestic magnificence of Christ 
and remain unchanged. As we experience the glory of Christ, we respond by reflecting the glory of Christ. And so maybe we need to be more like Moses and and say to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. This is his majestic magnificence. And that's my first point. The gift of revelation. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. The verse points to Christ preexistent preeminence. We may celebrate his human birth, but Christ is revealed to be eternal, having existed long before that physical birth. And because he is preexistently, he is preeminent. And so he deserves the highest place of importance and the highest place of exaltation. This verse also points to the inexplicable incarnation. Though fully God, he is, becomes fully man. So that deity and humanity are all encompassed within one being. It may be beyond our apprehension, but it's not a beyond our adoration. The verse also points to Christ's pleasing presence. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The presence of Christ is pleasing because it teaches us to be pleased by the presence of God. And finally, these verses point to the majestic magnificence, the glory of God shown through Jesus Christ. This is the gift of revelation. This is what God has revealed by giving us this gift At the birth of Christ, the Lord grants people his gift of revelation. With that gift, the Lord exposes himself to the world, using Christ as a means to reveal his word, his work, and his worth. This moment is the greatest moment in history because it gives us the greatest gift in history. Had it not been for God giving this gift of revelation, none of us would have the opportunity to know God in the same way that we now know God today. Pray the most significant gift we unwrap today be the gift of his revelation, because it brings us to the gift of his son. On this day of celebrating the birth of Christ, may we resolve to know the benefit of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father God, indeed you have given a great and glorious gift through your son, Christ. By his coming into the world, Lord, you have revealed yourself. You have revealed yourself in the form of a man in our likeness, Lord, and yet at the same time, he remains fully God. Lord, this makes him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. As we look upon him and see him as the sufficient, permanent, eternal God, Lord, May we also trust then that that sacrifice was sufficient. May we rejoice today at his birth because of what it signifies for us. That we can have a new birth, be born again into a salvation that with you. Lord, lead us to you today. 
Expose our hearts to you. Fill our minds with thoughts of you, Lord. And may we be overcome by the glory that we see through who your son is. We thank you for this this special day, Lord. And may it be a day of rejoicing. May it be a day of worship. And may it be a day in which we are both pleased by you and pleasing to you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.